leaden winter would bring you down forever But you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and I wish you a happy new year in 2023. I'm going to be recording a lot of uh, uh, flurry of activity, I hope, in the coming weeks here. I know I've been on a bit of a hiatus, uh, sort of day job work and writing and things chiefly have been keeping me away from the microphone. But I think actually the microphone can be part of a healthy routine as well uh, and keeps the brain moving in, in other places. Uh, for now, I have actually an episode together with Shunkmanitu uh, or Zitkato, who is the host of the Bands of Turtle Island you may remember. Uh, so this is a really interesting conversation. It, it, it moves according to its own logic, and uh, I, I want to respect that. And it, was, it happened at a certain moment where some interesting things were happening. So Shunkmanitu is a Lakota organizer. If you follow them on Twitter, you will see that they are gathering blankets and all kinds of resources for their indigenous community. And they had done a lot of work with the Red Nation. They've appeared on a lot of great work that they've done, including their book, The Red Deal, right? But they're uh, kind of parting ways there for the moment. And starting a new kind of brand, the rebranding to Chunkaluta, I believe is the new, the new name, C-H-U-N-K-A space L-U-T-A, Chunkaluta, the red path. That moment, it's, it's, uh, I like, I love when I can be a pollinator, a cross pollinator. I'm like a little butterfly bringing the pollen, uh, from, from place to place. And that's a great thing to do, you know, uh, when you can do that. And it, trying to name the talk about the different groups, you know, I almost sort of said, I am a bridge, I'm a pipeline between regular communist uh, Twitter or regular online left and conspiracy online left or, or parapolitics online left, right? That would be one quick way to say that. However, I don't know if the regular people deserve the term regular. When you really think about it, a lot of them are... It, they're grad student communists usually, um, you know, and I'm, I'm an academic myself. Uh, I was a grad student, so no, um, well, it's disrespect, you know, yeah, we, we academics, we bourgeois academics deserve uh, to be looked at askance a little bit, I, I think. And I will say that, including myself, right? I, I feel like on a, on a ideal vanguard party application form, it should say, are you now or have you ever been a grad student? 
Shunkmanitu, incidentally, has not been a grad student, I don't think, ever. And that is what a lot, you know, and some of it is that, and some of it is, um, a lo- you know, think about the people who have started the, the great uh, communist podcasts, right? They're not just communists, but they're, they're also grad students. <laughs> okay. And so, and that's also what constitutes their difference with, I'm, I'm starting to sound like a French theorist here, uh, but it's what constitutes like the, the dialectical contrast with conspiracy communists, right? <laughs> Which is that um, the conspiracy communists are the ones who have left the realm decisively of bourgeois respectability, believing in civil society, uh, believing in uh, like the basic honesty of legacy media or whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of trust in kind of a discursive space where uh, shared kind of truth claims are are present and and we can kind of like agree on basic reality together with and and that goes together with if you leave that space then if you leave that space then it's like oh where are you going are you you know I'm, it's never quite clear what are the topics where y- you have to believe exactly what the police say or else you're not a real leftist but there is a real kind of liberal uh zone where that is the case, de facto, even for people who identify as communists. And that can be with, uh, it can even be with something like the JFK assassination, which uh, not because JFK was some kind of great uh, (laughs) secret communist or something. Uh, I don't know who all is listening right now, but let me guarantee to you that nobody on the parapolitics communist side of the spectrum believes that but it's just about your worldview you know like in a world where such an amazing kind of coup d'etat type event could take place uh what does that say about your support of bernie about your support of the squad you know uh is you know ultra leftism obviously is not the way uh is there another way though is there other ways to to sort of deal with a, a situation an aoc for example who just over the new year right was uh uh, voted to crush the railway workers' strike, uh, just as the squad has done with nearly everything. That, and also, we just saw on the Republican side, the MAGA people are forcing the vote. Basically, they forced the vote by holding the speakership hostage in exactly the way uh, that the Bernie people were saying is what we need to do. Even that, no, too much. It wasn't going to happen. So, I think that ties in with, you know, what kind of world do you think that you live in? Uh, How much, what is this? It does, you know, uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, like, apply in in exactly quite that way right now? When raw class power can be uh, covertly, but... Uh, but also in your face, you know, in a certain way in your face. If you, they set it up so that if you're looking, you can see what the score is. And they want you to see. They want you to know that raw class power is out there. So someone like, you know, uh, certain Jacobin writers, we'll say, who also do uh, quite prominent podcasts, 
uh, who, uh, you know, will, will really openly say, oh, nobody really knows anything about the JFK assassination. <laughs> no, we know tons. And, and it goes quite against what the security state and what civil society wants you to believe about it. You know, and it's very, very provable. You know, if you believe in the lone gunman hypothesis, I have to ask you, do you believe that do you mean the lone gunman in Dallas or the one they had set up in Chicago or the one they had in Tampa, Florida? Which lone gunman? And that very sort of pro uh, bourgeois academic respectability bias is is in a, a lot of these these shows, I will submit as much as I respect them and have learned so much from them. So this is a wonderful chance, a wonderful kind of new beginning for Shunkmani to, uh, you know, you'll notice that uh, we weren't even really sure whose show this was going to be uh, at first. I, I realized as we started talking that I wasn't sure what show I was on, but it's a great honor for me to be participating in a kind of re reboot here because they have done this wonderful work, uh, Yoded, right? The Yoded series. Uh, thus far, which they're going to continue. So there's a lot to look forward to there. Uh, first of all, the the rest of uh, I will what I will now call regular 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 communist uh, podcasting world that is not necessarily academically respectable. Uh, it's well sourced. It's scientific. It's rigorous. Right. It's very very grounded in reality. It's materialist. It's dialectical all of these things, uh, but it, it is not academically respectable uh, because I will submit the academic edifice is not respectable, the, not from a proletarian perspective, not from an accurate, if you, if you see the world accurately, you will know that the academic edifice is inherently compromised, you know, from the beginning. I mean, what, what it starts out as uh, kind of part of the feudal uh, ideological apparatus, right? Uh, and in the kingless generation, we'll be sensitive to that as well. Just because something is pre-capitalist doesn't make it egalitarian or, or you know, pre-class society. So no to uh, academic respectability. You can't preserve that, right? So in, uh, let me extend on behalf of uh, all of all of non-academically respectable communist uh, online left a, a great welcome to Shunkmani to come on in, the water's fine. And we really look forward to learning from you. I mean, and it could be about any fucking thing, but especially your indigenous perspective uh, and all the insight, wisdom that you'll bring to that. Because if you're a listener, if you are a listener to my podcast, you will know that uh, we need that. We need that to, because we have to deal with all of the different archons, powers, rulers of the air, uh, not just capitalism. There's a lot more other stuff in the background there going back, right, to feudalism, uh, to, to other things that uh, really only indigenous societies would hold the keys to defeating, you know? Very, very successful recent examples of people who have had stable, happy, harmonious societies up until very recently, right? So there's no substitute for that uh, experience, yeah? And also that experience of, of fighting the apocalypse, fighting the, the total meltdown that so many people have already experienced, 
right? You know, a, a teacher of Shukmanitu would be Nick Estes, uh, whose book, Our History is the Future, is a very inspiring uh, manifesto on, along those lines, right? Uh, the, you know, indigenous people have already experienced the apocalypse that settlers like us are now about to experience with the uh, in inherent contradictions of the settler relation and of capitalism and everything just uh, totally melting down, right? I mean, so we have a lot to learn uh, from Shukmani too. Definitely check out Chunka Luta, support them on Patreon, all the rest of it. And uh, Shukmanitu can't wait to see uh, what directions they go in being plugged into uh, this uh, non-academic, respectable online left here. Yeah, can't wait. So for today, what we actually have, the Lusiads, right? Us Lusiadas is an epic poem from and about Age of Exploration Portugal. And it's kind of actually written right at the tail end of the golden age of Portuguese exploration. They're already losing momentum, really, to Spain. But Luís Vaz de Camões is one of the early explorers who writes this uh, epic poem celebrating the Portuguese discoveries. In uh, On the one hand, kind of this classic, like, Christian uh, chivalric romance mode, right? Uh, like Amadis de Gaula, like Esplandian, right? The kind of thing that these explorers had in their heads. That was the very much the soundtrack or the Bible of the Age of Exploration was these knight's tales, which I've already discussed on this podcast. Um, that's the secret core of all kinds of conservative discourse, of even liberal discourses that, that revolve around Western supremacy, European supremacy, uh, it all comes from these knights' tales, these images of these knights, you know, uh, protecting, winning back the islands that the, that the emperor of Constantinople wasn't able to hold. But we in the West, you know, we have, we're these wild little guys out on the frontier and we're able to kind of um, fight the dragons and the giants who, who definitely symbolize Islam and the other uh, denizens of the, the actual civilized world at that time, uh, from whom they were capturing capital networks and learning about the magic of capital and learning the magic of drugs, yeah, right? Pharma, pharmacology, right? I have said that if the feudalism can be talked about as the grain state, then capitalism maybe should be talked about as the drug state. They do go really hand in hand in a new way, I think, uh, the, the drugs, right? Um, we've seen that in the picaresque, the Islamic picaresque, where it actually begins uh, in the Islamic world with the Banu Sassan and uh, is taken over by people like Luis Vaj de Camões, and they're then discovering all kinds of new pharmacological knowledge, plants and animals uh, and their parts and byproducts that can be ingested and smoked and otherwise used to change human, uh, the way that the human body and mind work, right? This is beginning in this time, in the early modern period, right? We're talking about the 16th century. The Lusiads are first published in 1572. So, 
Um, and yeah, Camoens, actually the first poem that he ever published was a poetic introduction to a catalog of uh, pharmacology, a, ca- a catalog of drugs, which was a whole uh, prolific genre at this time. All the lists of the new drugs that were being um, appropriated, you know, not discovered by the Europeans, but right, learned about. Uh, and this includes things like aspirin. It includes uh, you know, opium, cannabis, and things that we wouldn't consider to be drugs today, like ambergris or something. You know, that's like an ingredient in perfume. It's like basically the the boogers of a whale or something. But apparently, at this time, if a European ingested that in particular, uh, they would become uh, animated as if they had drunk a large quantity of wine. So, you know, the the human bodies are working in different ways and they're interacting with different substances in different ways. There's loads to say, you know, Marcus in Return of the Repressed talks a lot about in in the about the Green Revolution. Right. Those episodes on the Green Revolution are fantastic. God, the recent episodes on like primitive communism in the sea. Right. Um, just the idea. I mean, this is the real, the real good news that lies behind something like ancient aliens, right? Where, where the ancient aliens discourse can, can take you into a kind of uh, revanchist white supremacist direction. The real truth that is, lies there for you to find is that most of humanity at most times was so much freer. It was so much, right? And, and when we didn't have class society, when we weren't stuck in this one pattern, we weren't riding this tidal wave of disastrous, destructive uh, states and armies and ruling classes, right? Uh, and people were free to explore the, the oceans. Uh, this was a real thing, right? And if there's, a, if there's a truth behind sort of myths of Atlantis or something, right? Like that is the beautiful, wonderful thing that is there. Uh, and, and maybe that, you know, that ties in well with this because, uh, you know, the Lusiads, they, Camoens has a kind of democratic ethos, fittingly for an ancestor of the bourgeoisie, but he ends with a kind of, uh, the end of, of Canto 9, which I am dealing with, uh, this time. So he says, uh, real quick, uh, it's a little, little aside kind of to the king, to the king. He's writing this in honor of. King John I, who funded uh, all of this early exploration, right? And he, but he takes him aside and sort of like giving him all this advice. Maintain peace with equitable laws, shielding the poor from levies of the rich, or gird yourself in shining armor against the enemy Saracens. You will make your kingdom rich and mighty, and all will have more and none suffer. Yours will be deserved wealth such as thrives, and those honors which shed luster on our lives. So wait a minute, uh, let me back up. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because there was the online kerfuffle you remember. I will say this briefly just to, to tee up the conversation, and we should get right into, into it with Shungmani too. But it was a while ago now, but you remember how the, the, they announced that the new Little Mermaid uh, would be black. And a, a lot of right-wingers were sort of saying, oh, you know, this is just representation in, in this very liberal kind of way, whiny, whiny liberal representation. I mean, it's like, it's literally representation. We want a white representation, right? Um, and, uh, you know, that was silly and that was entertaining and stuff. Uh, 
uh, pointing out that. But but at the same time, I was thinking, oh my God, you know, uh, because I had read uh, this great piece by a scholar named Deborah Ross called Miyazaki's Little Mermaid, A Goldfish Out of Water. And it's actually a comparison of the Disney's Little Mermaid with Miyazaki's Ponyo, right? As two different little mermaids. And the things they point out, I remembered what Deborah Ross pointed out about the Disney one, how uh, it's, it's kind of about giving up on freedom and childhood and individuality and buying into kind of a housewife kind of existence and sacrificing yourself for a man. It's actually extremely patriarchal is one of the, th- the main things that is pointed out, right? Whereas Miyazaki embraces more the freedom of the sea and the freedom, the possibilities of evolution as well, you know, looking at those, those scenes of kind of watching evolution happen instantaneously over time. Uh, there, there is, you know, Miyazaki is not like awesome. He's not a model uh, politically, I don't think, but uh, I, I fuck with that. You know, those scenes of like things, there, there's something like karmic about that. I have a kind of karmic vision. That's where I get a lot of my hope from, you know, uh, even if I don't make it, even if I don't make it happen, you know, there's things will be repeated. There's a kind of eternal return, but with a change, it always changes. Everything is always changing. And there is an eternal return. Even if this humanity uh, is doomed to extinction, there will be another, there will be other relatives of other species, maybe even on other planets. And they will get it right. They will eventually. Right. And, and no matter what, you and I will be part of that story of life. Even in our failure as individuals or whatever. Right. Uh, as meaningful as our individual lives are. Uh, definitely reach out today to a, a human being um, or some other some other relative, whatever. Uh, but if you can look a human being in the eyes and just really see that image, image of God or, or whatever you want to say. Right. Uh, connect with somebody in some kind of way. Hug someone if you have someone you you normally hug, uh, or whatever you culturally want to do. Right, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to enjoy this moment here as a human being. Right, because yeah, we don't know how long that's going to last uh, for us, but at the same time, we know it goes on. Life goes on, uh, and it really will go on, kind of no matter what happens to us. There, there, there is that kind of eternal return. And there are certain images in Ponyo that really bring that out for me. Uh, But what Deborah Ross was doing with The Little Mermaid, talking about how this is so, especially the song, Part of That World. She's looking at all these human things that she sort of collected in this one cave underwater and talking about how, yeah, I need to go and join that that human world uh, to subordinate myself to a man. Uh, And yeah, it's very patriarchal, right? Uh, but what it occurs to me is that it's only uh, by her being white uh, that it keeps it only being patriarchal. Uh, because, if anything, the modern image of the mermaid derives, uh, I, w- I will say, you know, Shukmani too went and did all this great research about Greek mermaids, uh, mermaids in, you know, maybe what we might even call. Uh, you know, little tiny glimpses. I think we would always want to remember how little of what we have 
uh, is representative of the whole picture of what existed in the past. At any time, the survival rate is very low of any given type of, of document, documentation of the past or evidence of the past, right? And so probably a lot more is there that is dark to us, right? And I mean, that gets us into the ancient aliens kind of thing, right? And the conservative imagination, the reactionary imagination, right? Whether it's high class or low class, you know, and most of it is, is reaction from below. That's the interesting thing about reactionary thought, right? It's, it's very, uh, you know, kind of weak and, and um, S&M. There's a real S&M dynamic there. Uh, and mostly it's M, right? Um, mostly it's masochistic uh, to be a, a reactionary because you, not everybody's going to be on the top, right? Most people are not on the top at all. There's, there's your way on the bottom. And it's about reconciling yourself to being on the bottom and getting off on being on the bottom and, and so on, right? And so notice how this conservative discourse about the Black Little Mermaid uh, you know, the funny thing about it was that it pre it presumed that, like, the mermaid, the little mermaid was a historical figure, right? But in a sense, she was an historical figure. And if she was an historical figure, she comes from the age of exploration. And it's the indigenous women uh, who appear in all kinds of explorers, uh, conquistadors, diaries, uh, talking about, you know, in the best cases, which I'm, I'm sure were a minority, uh, you know, it's about Europeans experiencing kind of non-patriarchal sexual cultures where uh, you have group marriage, you don't have an expectation of monogamy on a woman's part because you don't have the need to pass on private property to an heir. And so you know, the, the sexuality and the reproductive capacity of a woman is not protected as the exclusive property of a father or a clan or a, a class. Ultimately, it would be a, a class that owns the body of the woman in a patriarchal society. Well, a lot of these societies they're encountering are not patriarchal. And so, you know, in the best cases, they're experiencing that and it's whatever they, they have this in their diaries. But, you know, uh, in the vast majority of cases, uh, that even that we have in diaries and stuff, they're just bragging about, yeah, I rolled up on some indigenous women on the beach and just, you know, um, you know, content warning here, uh, and hereafter, right. Having their way, uh, th these explorers are ha very much having their way with all these indigenous women. And there's an enormous kind of like celebration of that in Canto 9 of the Lusiads. Uh, that's what I want to bring out today. Uh, and I'll have a lot of specific quotes from that, which I will present actually after my conversation with Shunkmanitu, after this. Um, so with that, I think I have uh, basically teed it up. Yeah. Um, at the end of Vasco da Gama, mainly rounding the, the Cape of Good Hope, rounding the Horn of Africa, and uh, sort of getting into the South Asian maritime uh, trading networks and, and blasting their way in there, massacring a bunch of people and securing uh, trading privileges around India. And that little, that key step has sort of been taken in the poem and now they're heading back and it's basically the end, second to last canto. 
And so, and this is the other interesting thing, right? All along, it's got this kind of Knight's Tale chivalric romance vibe of, you know, the soldiers of Christ defeating finally the, the Muslim infidels. But then on the other hand, he's imitating the Aeneid and the Odyssey, and he's got a council of gods, Camoens does. Uh, a council of gods sort of deciding what the fate of the heroes will be. Um, so there's this interesting tension there, right? And in the Council of the Gods, the advocate of the Portuguese is Venus, the goddess of love. And then you have uh, the, the advocate of the Muslims is actually Dionysus, interestingly. Um, so you have actually these two figures that both are, are about kind of, um, well, they're both about, yeah, certain kinds of libido, maybe. Kinds of libido. And, and Dionysus is maybe, is that more unrestrained libido? Um, I don't know. You know, you could think of like Nietzsche's d distinction between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. Um, Apollo being sort of bright, open, uh, and also restrained in a certain way, whereas Dionysian, Dionysus is uh, about a, a bit reckless abandon or whatever, right? This would be in in Roman God, in the Roman pantheon, this is Bacchus, right? The God of wine. Uh, but it's about more than just wine. You know, the, the cults of Dionysus in the Greek world were like orgiastic cults. Um, one of the examples of actually uh, early ritual societies, right? One of the examples that's run by women, in fact, you know, like in Euripides, uh, the Bacchae, the Bacchae, that, uh, that's um, where the hero Pentheus trespasses on the secret rites of Dionysus and the women of that cult uh, catch him and tear him apart. I should probably stop free associating pretty soon here, but uh, another good one would be that that, that distinction, uh, Dionysian and Apollonian, is one that is used by Ruth Benedict, one of the great disciples of Franz Boas, the uh, anthropologist who recorded the Kwakwakiwak, uh, right, and in, in so many unfair ways sometimes, right? His disciple, Ruth Benedict, was hired by the U.S. Office of War Information as the head of the Japan group to analyze Japan during the war and help to decide the course that ultimately settled on using the emperor as a puppet, uh, an American puppet after the war, right? Uh, that's evident in the so-called Japan Plan, uh, which was written and approved at the highest levels, written by the uh, Office of um, Psychological Operations, um, the Psychological Operations Division, right, uh, and approved in 1942, June. So June of 1942, like not even, ha like not even half a year, maybe, from uh, Pearl Harbor. And they had already kind of decided to um, use the emperor as a puppet. And Ruth Benedict's scholarship, um, without much data, you know, she's light on data when it comes to arguing that, oh, Japanese people just always obey the emperor. Yes, it's a modern construct, but they couldn't possibly imagine anything uh, else. And, you, you know, you just have to preserve it exactly, you know, whatever. Um, well, it, what it is is like, yeah, it's a construct, but it's a very successful psychological operation that is being used on, uh, that works on these people. So if we want to control these people, uh, hey, we can use it too. So that was that. 
uh, right? And she she had this this distinction. This is one of her contributions: is to divide human cultures into Apollonian and Dionysian cultures. And you know, there's uh, the thing that we can affirm here about that is that at at her time in her day, uh, racism was very much the norm, and she is the pioneer of a liberal multiculturalism and cultural relativism and saying, Hey, there's, you know, people can have a whole different set of values and a whole different set of assumptions. Right. Uh, which is very accurate, very true, uh, and very important. Something crucial for us there, uh, as we build the kingless generation in all different nations. But yeah, so the original little mermaid, uh, to the extent that she existed in history, uh, this is the indigenous woman encountering a European uh, conquistador. That's what this is, right? And and there's a whole scene just sort of uh, celebrating that in all of its violence while denying the violence of it and upholding a certain kind of equality for for the male explorer. Right. Not to say settler, you know, Portuguese were not actually interested in settler colonialism per se in uh, the Eastern Hemisphere anyway. Uh, And in Brazil, you know, I don't know enough. Um, My sense is that the the slavery there worked very disposably as well. They were just like um, shipping in, you know, you can watch these animations of all the slave ships going across the Atlantic. And it's just like... It's like atomic particles bombarding something like uh, just the dots of slave ships go blindingly fast every year, just every month uh, across carrying people to their deaths, you know, to just be worked to death. Right. Um, So populations staying there. I don't know in Brazil, you know, to what extent was the population stable? Um, That would be a question I'd want to ask. But in any case. Right. We have a certain kind of settler. Right. And that's what this this thing is, you know, maintain peace with equitable laws, shielding the poor from levies of the rich. Right. I think it might be kind of limited who the subject is of that. Uh, You know, nevertheless, little bourgeois democracy. Right. Equality ideas coming into being. Um, Which must be um, aufgehoben. They must be saved and taken up to a higher register in the kingless generation. So, without further ado, uh, The Little Mermaid, The Indigenous Reality of The Little Mermaid, with Shunkmani 2. Shamani to uh, Bluebird or Zikato. Um, th- it's been a while on this feed directly. Uh, a lot of the 
Patreons might know that I've been doing a bunch of collaborations because I try to centralize that stuff on Patreon. Um, but now we're trying to get back to full swing now that a lovely donor helped fix the computer. So uh, I feel very lucky and blessed by the comrades and people that I influenced and met in my life. And, you know, I, to me, it's just like more proof of communism's success materially, I guess. Uh, but today we're here with a kingless generation. I don't know. Do you, what do you introduce yourself as? online perhaps you'll introduce yourself so yeah we do uh the kingless generation is a podcast on the deep history of class struggle paleo parapolitics and the demonology of capital uh Hmm. and i am fergal schmoodlock can you explain parapolitics a little bit just because yeah uh, it's a very yeah i got it from you you know (laughs) oh sweet sweet it's i mean it's like a good word it's a scientific word for like Conspiracy theory, which is a term that the CIA invented to discredit people who are doing uh, class analysis, right? It's funny yeah, that word. You know? Yeah, which Whoa, means like pe- when people are doing things behind the scenes and people are doing, you know, uh, it's like deliberate exercise of class power that is often well, and it's covert. More accurate, right? It's often covert. It's to right. the side of politics. It's to the side of the electoral spectacle or the king on his throne or whatever is going on. But even then, I feel like parapolitics uh, captures that phenomenon more accurately in that Mm. conspiracy theory, whereas it's normally covert, parapolitics does happen overtly a lot of times, like, say, with propagandists like Alex Jones or even myself with, like, the Yoded series on the Red Media podcast. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, Red Media Patreon, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I feel very much that uh, that is engaging in parapolitical behavior. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about, you know, how does things actually affect reality, when you say conspiracy theory, it kind of just sounds like it's outlandish and not um, engaged with material reality, whereas in in actuality, it's, you know, Abe got offed by a freaking Fallout 2, (laughs) you know, Mm. shotgun made at Radio Shack. You know, uh, here in Michigan, uh, some people down in a uh, downstate, uh, like in the Lower Peninsula, uh, got killed because their dad was a QAnon. Uh huh. So he oh, murdered oh, yeah, his family. He murdered his family. Yeah. Well, right wing. That's the that's a classic counterinsurgency strategy is to make sure that certain elements of, uh, you know, class consciousness and and also ruling class activities actually only get out on the right where nobody knows what to do with that information. Oh, and then another thing so... that does is to, to shitcoat that for anyone who's on the left to be like, oh, that's the kind of thing only right-wingers talk about. Um, and that was part of the, the literal intent of introducing the term conspiracy theory to discourse is to, they, deli- they actually spell it out. Uh, we want to uh, discredit anyone talking about these things by making them look insane, associating them with all kinds of insane things that are obviously wrong, right? Well, to be fair, I think there is a use in doing that as the left um, for different conversations, right? So things commonly associated with QAnon, like adrenochrome, right? We want to get Mm -hmm. rid of blood libel references. Because Mm -hmm. I don't think at any level anybody's drinking the blood of babies, you know? I don't Mm. think there is a 
person in the ruling class monstrous enough to do that in actuality. You know, like even the Bohemian Grove shit. <laughs> well, no, that Bohemian Jones Grove is pretty thought. pretty tame, actually, in reality. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's a is play. Not... It's a bunch of plays. That in one the is. Woods. Yeah. So my listeners will know that I have to interject here. Uh, I have talked with Shunkmani too about this, and it's an extremely salient topic, and there's a lot more to say. But very quickly, I have three points. Maybe I'll start here. So I have very bad news that in very recent times, the Franklin Credit Union pedophilia ring where, you know, those parties, Poppy Bush was uh, popping in and out of those parties, although maybe not participating in the festivities too much, according to that one thing. But uh, but the victims and perpetrators of that uh, attest that ritual cannibalism and ritual murder were part of what was being partaken in. I take no joy in reporting that many of the victims seem to have been black, indigenous children. And this testimony was only retracted after the victims were literally, their lives were threatened to their faces by the FBI agents that were supposed to be uh, helping them with their, their case. And this is a topic that apparently is mainstream enough that it was taken up on Chapo Trap House. So, uh, yeah, go listen to that if you'd like to learn more. And then if you really want to get into it, you got to listen to Subliminal Jihad's treatment of the Franklin scandal. All right. Um, the Atlanta child murders is another one. That's mostly black children. The perpetrator that was caught specifically said that this was a ring for ritual sexual abuse, murder, and cannibalism which was being run out of a local uh, military base, a real kind of Fort Bragg type situation down there. Fort Bragg, of course, in the news again, as apparently some of them are actually being prosecuted for some of the child trafficking and drug trafficking and crazy, apparently ritual murders that they've been doing on each other and just anything that moves. Back on the Atlanta child murders, then Vice President George H.W. Bush goes down there randomly to make sure that the investigation stays, quote, on track. Uh, another one, the Matamoros cult, that is an anti-communist secret society among white settlers in Mexico. The name means more slayers, uh, quite appropriately, and they practice ritual cannibalism. Both this and the Atlanta child murders, I think the best thing that's out there is programmed to chill. It might be premium episodes, but check that out. And another one would be the Dutroux Affair. You can listen to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. I think their very first episode is about the Dutroux Affair in Belgium. Number two, point number two, this is actually not a new phenomenon, but in fact, one of the oldest phenomena that we see with ruling classes in human history. And the classic cases of this are in the cradle of so-called civilization in the Near East, very prominently. About 12,000 years ago, out of, you know, 200,000 years of human history, or however you want to count, so that's not, it, this is not human nature, but archaeology and anthropology take the presence of ritual cannibalism in elite secret society ritual sites which tend to be very small and, and hidden kind of caves and things, right? It's the original kind of spirit of, of class domination, right? The cannibal spirit, you know? And I think this is the great wisdom 
of, in fact, a lot of the indigenous societies that uh, are often wrongly accused of be, yeah, being cannibals and so on, right? This is the other thing that is taken as a, as a stigma uh, against indigenous communities. But in fact, I would argue that these indigenous communities are the only ones who have found ways to explicitly, as they say, right, tame the cannibal spirit and balance the cannibal spirit. And because that cannibal spirit is there, whether you acknowledge it or not, that's the spirit of class domination. I'm going to fuck and kill and eat uh, the whole world. And this is the source as well of the predatory, patriarchal, colonial sexuality that we see in the Lusiads today. And the societies that have actually mastered it and balanced it out. And you have a, a healthy ecosystem of, of ritual societies and dance societies. And no one group does ever get uh, in control of the surplus and thereby become a ruling class, right? So that addresses as well the kind of, with respect to anti-Semitism as well, you know, this is Keir Starmer logic. This was what was used against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, well, anti-Semites have said that Jews control the economy. So if you say that capitalists control the economy, well, then you're doing anti-Semitic tropes, right? Aren't you? Right. And of course, we reject that. So I'm very sorry to say that indeed ritual cannibalism is real most of all in the so-called birthplace of civilization and the so-called civilized, feudal, and capitalist societies from the evidence that we have. So, um, yeah, that's the cannibal spirit. That's the, that's the wisdom to fight that is, is what we are after in the kingless generation, actually. And it is precisely indigenous societies that have stayed more or less classless that have that wisdom to fight it. So welcome to the kingless generation, my friends. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I stopped at Bohemian Grove when I was on the West mm. Coast. And you can just yeah. go see it. You can just go look at it. It's no big deal. They don't care. As long as nothing's going on, you can go look at it. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Walter Cronkite, whose voice not only is the stone owl in Bohemian Grove, but if you go huh. to uh, the Trees of Mystery in I, Northern California, uh, right before you get to Eureka, um, those uh, yeah. redwoods, uh, they have a voice that speaks over the you know, loudspeakers a lot. And uh, I guess it funds Bohemian Grove, the mystery. Oh, voice. wow. So I wow. think it's Walter Cronkite who does both sets of voices. Oh, <laughs> could, could very well be. Yeah. Um, well, the point is, the ruling class does organize and it does act in its own interest. And for that reason, looking into parapolitics is a crucial vitamin, I would say. I apologize. I've got literally a workman outside my uh, window doing, uh, putting together a, what do you call it? A scaffold for construction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's awesome. We're going to be, uh, you know, like right on site here. For this episode it's really weird for me because it's gonna be very black scenic. outside so it's like <laughs> quite literally night yeah. time now and for yeah. you your day is just beginning <laughs> yeah this is early morning here in tokyo um yeah so i'm a i'm a professor of japanese literature at a sleepy little university in tokyo and yeah i think parapolitical analysis That's is a fine. crucial vitamin in historical materialism right um, it isn't all just blind market forces, right? 
uh, because, you know, we, we want to be an active class force, right? And I, I love your uh, saying that, you know, something pa- parapolitics is something that we can do and must do, right? We have to have our, what is, a, what is a party, a revolutionary party, if not a kind of secret society and a kind of, right? Well, in our culture, to- we call it a tioshpaye, which is a collection cool. of people who share a prayer or a vision. Yep. You know, and to mm-hmm. me, a lot of times organizations, if you're actually forming a cadre as yeah. like a real like fucking ML would, yeah. you know, it should operate more like a secret society in a way, you know, that you're protected mm-hmm. about the information that you, you know, withhold, yeah. withhold from society is a bad way to put it, you know, mm-hmm. but there is but withhold from the class way. enemy. Withhold from the class enemy is more accurate. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, uh, I believe we were having a discussion on, like, probably when we first met about um, the class um, nature within indigenous societies and how much variety there is and how, yeah, um, like, uh, the what was it? Um, first settlement down in Virginia, Jamestown, maybe? Jamestown. Mm. Was that what we were talking about? Something yeah. like what? that. Did we talk about that? I don't uh, know. <laughs> we were talking about uh, basically just uh, like the way chiefs uh, in that area were asking for sacrifices or like a, a don- donations, if you will, of like meats that hunters would gather. And uh, that seemed to you as a form of like bourgeois, like taxing, you know. I don't remember this. I don't, a- I don't know if that was me, but let's talk about it no, now. That was you. Um, yeah, that was you, I think. So let me break in right here. Uh, this is Fergal editing this episode later. Uh, I remembered what it was that Shungmanitu is referring to here in an early message uh, conversation that we had. I recommended, uh, they were asking for things related to fascism, and I recommended James from Prolocult. He did uh, fascism, like something, decay. I think it's just called decay about fascism as managed decay. And I didn't even remember that there's this thing in there about, you know, Jamestown and then the indigenous people around there. Also, they were engaged in an exploitative class society, uh, whatever, and and doesn't really give a lot of any credit to like the Iroquois Confederacy or any of the ways in which actually uh, indigenous societies were uh, way less exploitative and had a lot to teach Europeans and they did actually teach Europeans a lot. You know, I would say that's where the enlightenment comes from uh, all in all of this, right. In a European context anyway. So that wasn't me. And I forgot that that was in there and it wasn't the part of it that I wanted to recommend, but it's interesting to see that. Yeah. Like I was able to just totally tune that out and just not, you know, I don't, I wouldn't agree with that if you put that to me. Um, so that's what that was. I mean, I might be mischaracterizing what you said, but I don't remember talking about um, Jamestown. I don't actually know anything about it. I don't know if it Um, was Jamestown, but we were talking about, but I would expect there to be feasting, right? Yeah. I'd expect there to, well, I have dealt much more with the Northwest Turtle Island stuff. Um, Kwakwakiwak. Yeah. And like, uh, well also, Wait, what? Wakiwak are, are one of the the potlatch peoples. And, oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah. 
So like feasting, uh, that sounds like feasting culture, right? Um, which, as you say, you know, these people who share a common vision, that sounds like a feasting society or dance society, which would be another name. for. Well, I'm not just comedy. talking societies at this point. This is broader. Yeah. Um, where, like, in, in our culture, yeah, completely different setup. You were telling me about this one. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure about the specificities of anything. But um, Well, you had the, North, yeah, the Hudson Bay Company up there i don't lie hall was was mostly educating me about this but um oh yeah but this would have been east coast for sure oh okay yeah i don't know too much about that um but that that would kind of bring us to what we were going to maybe we can get into today a little bit right i mean this could easily be part one um i my impetus for for sure (laughs) reaching out to you yeah yeah um my impetus for reaching out to you was to discuss real quick this little uh, kerfuffle right now about uh, the Black Little Mermaid, right? Oh, got yeah, your people. Yeah. Oh, you got... I, I forgot that we have to specify it's black too. I was just gonna yeah. say the new Little Mermaid, but yeah, yeah. it's because well, that's it's the idea. exactly. Black that's little the mermaid. discourse, right? Yeah, and it's like, should she be black? Should she not? What is she really black? She's not really black, and uh, you literally had. A a settler on there saying, "Now we're gonna make, we're gonna own you by making a Malcolm make X movie. White. Oh yeah, yeah make a Malcolm X too. movie who's white. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw a Pocahontas that's white. I saw a Malcolm X that's white. Yeah, uh, I think I saw an MLK Jr. that's white. I'm just like, uh-huh. I mean, I feel like y'all have them. <laughs> yeah." That Black literal person kind of a big thing, yeah. And the president of Canada literally did what, what a prime minister of Canada literally did blackface. So, no. I think, uh, he did. I think, yeah. uh, y'all already got that one covered. I don't think you need to do anything <laughs> extra. I think yeah. all of history shows exactly <laughs> why it's okay to do white actors, white roles right. as black roles. I mean, Paul Robeson as Othello is probably one of the more yeah. like uh, historic versions of this discussion. And it's uh-huh. the same take we're seeing now. Uh, but these people will say they're not racist, whereas the people before would say, you're damn right I'm racist. You know? <laughs> like, oh, I mean, oh, yeah, that's true. There is a certain liberalism on the right now and that's really interesting and and that's kind of what's motivating this like we want our uh whatever you know uh but well, the, the big thing is uh yeah. there's a coalition of like militia movements and patriotic movements a lot of kkk members uh yeah. <laughs> that got together in 93 or 92 oh. uh, right before uh clinton's elected whatever whenever mm-hmm. that's i don't remember what year that was but right. um Whenever Clinton's elected, a bunch of them got together and was like, we need to stop being so racist. Uh-huh. And that's why they went quiet for a while. And now they're coming uh-huh. back out because Trump was elected. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not a new thing. You, the further you look back, the more you realize, like, oh, there was just a little quiet spell, like, basically when I was a kid. And, like, yeah, right Literally. before that. I, and even was, then, I grew yeah, up in a mega yeah. church. And it was racist as shit. Racist as fucking shit. My grandpa Mm -hmm. ran that church, you know? Mm -hmm. So you'd think, first off, we would be hooked up. Nah, nah, nah. 
he built wow. a big old house, but my dad was like the black sheep of the family. So it was fuck him. He's lucky he gets oh, any help, sucks. you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was like after my mom, who's the native, lost custody. But uh, so th- this is a oh, white no. dude we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, and I see. This man shook George Bush Jr.'s oh. hand. So here we are. Oh, like, okay. Okay. The National yeah. Prayer Breakfast or whatever. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. He Probably. shook his fucking hand at that shit. And I was like, Pancakes what the or something? Yeah. I'm thinking about this shit now, and I'm like, what the actual fuck? That man is oh, a no, mass yeah. murderer. I mean, uh-huh. a horrible, horrible person. And my grandpa, who I would call oh, of course. the perfect Christian, according yeah. to evangelical Christians, you know. But yeah. here he is, shaking a warmonger's hand, raising millions of dollars for fucking missionaries, probably bringing mm-hmm. CIA stuff into the fucking countries they work in like uh mm-hmm. my grandpa went on a missions trip when china first allowed missionaries into the country oh you know no so war like, but the class the war first, the class yeah, war if you're is one on. of the first missionaries there i yeah. think there was a cia stooge with you you know mm-hmm. i just think there is just at this point because i would too. i know how fucking history actually works you shook the fucking devil's hand you you yeah. shook the devil's hand as a pastor, and you think you're a good person, you know, uh, our church put on plays. I forget what they named us, but it was the most racist fucking native names you could have come up with. Because for some reason, our actual native names, it's not asking us to play Indian. You're asking us to be ourselves. But you won't let us have our names because you're so racist, you think we're removed from your idealized version of the past. It's like, I grew up putting up teepees. I grew up sleeping in a log cabin without any fucking electricity under an elk hide. You know, like, I I, I don't know how to explain it to people, but it's like colonialism wasn't that long ago. Okay, my aunt, who's 42, was in a boarding school. Still going on. Yeah. Well, uh, well, but I mean, getting that, to people is that it's still yeah. going on. They're like, you're really, you're really stretching for it, you know. And it's like, I don't think I am, but you know, uh, uh, yeah. if we look back to thirty years ago, you know, <laughs> no. I mean, you had a yellow thunder now. camp, which was a move to produce a green indigenous um, locale. I'll say, but I mean, it was a town, it was a city that uh, was the largest population center on my reservation for a second. Uh, and it was because, well, not really on my reservation. It's uh, in Rapid City, but it's close enough to the reservation that it was just becoming like a reclamation of land. It took the feds uh, shooting some guns within the camp. And then for some reason, my uncle Russ ran off with a bunch of money from the donations after working with the Contras. I, oh, I, I wonder who's oh. a federal agent. Oh. I wonder who's a federal agent. Well, there you who, go. Who could be the plant? I don't know. Only the yeah. leader, shit. I mean, that's quite the accusation. If you look in the right the place, contract. there's all kinds of stuff going on. Well, class, so like my uncle Leo is right there in front of us. My uncle Leo is talking about around this time, and yeah, some dudes from Kosovo talking about the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo came to the Sundance in Wind Cave. I've only ever met white supremacist Kosovoian patriots, you know. Oh. So I'm wondering if like this this is like the connection in history. 
I don't know how I'd find um, that out, but if you know, message me at bandsofturtleisland at gmail.com. <laughs> Hit him up. Yeah. But, yeah. So, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, Little Mermaid besides that. You know, long yeah. Time. Yeah. So that <laughs> actually leads right into where this actually goes for me. So you, I reached out to you because I realized, so I also do a lot with Portuguese stuff. And okay. that oh, yeah, is, mentioned yeah, the Portuguese literature, right? So like there is an epic poem that's written kind of in the style of Virgil lauding all the accomplishments of the Portuguese uh, discoverers, quote unquote. And uh, it's, it's written by Luís Vaz de Camões, who is a explorer, drug dealer, um, probably a rapist and uh, quite a, an adventurer. You know, an adventurer. And That's an impressive resume. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to be a drug dealer. In, in any given society, the, it, the ruling class controls the drug trade. That is axiomatic. Well, um, even then, if you're a drug dealer, that's just a sign of a well-rounded person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. I was a drug dealer um, once upon a whether time. Whether <laughs> you control the trade. Well, whether you control the trade or not. I think he was maybe one of the ones who was really controlling the incipient Right. He had like stocks in the opium trade. You He's know? moving around. Like, oh yeah, I got fourteen papers that say I own part of the Dutch East Indian Company. <laughs> yeah, that is the whole exactly. Um, so he then writes this epic poem uh, uh, in which you know it's it's a weird kind of mixture between classic sort of Christian triumphalism, Catholic triumphalism. Mm. You know, we defeat we're defeating the the muslims right and god is on our sure. side you know the god of christianity but also he's told he's doing this aeneid thing right like virgil so he's got uh this whole you know all the greek gods out again and this is really the most and, and uh luis vaj de Camões, the author of the luciads which um Lucis, that's another name for uh portugal Right. So it's like the epic oh, okay. poem of Portugal. Those were the papers you sent me in email. The Adventures of the Portuguese. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he's mainly talking about Vasco da Gama, rounding the Cape of Africa and getting into the Indian Ocean for the first time, discovering all those trade routes that are existing there. You know, this is the, the Silk Road economy that existed from, uh, you know, the Abbasid Caliphate is trading with uh, Song, China. And well, but it wasn't uh, even the Silk Road you're talking. Of, you're talking like, uh, you know, like even ocean trades with this. Yeah, it's maritime, like maritime Indian Ocean trade, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like as the alternative to the Silk Road, the Portuguese pursued colonies that way in order to uh, provide an alternative that's technically quicker. Well, maritime South Asia. Road was. Yeah, Maritime South Asia existed from the Abbasid Caliphate and um, Gupta Dynasty India and and Song Dynasty China, and uh, oh, wow. was was around first. And the Portuguese only I took never this realized over. they were that extended. Yeah. though. holy yeah, shit! Yeah, yeah. I have an episode on Abu Zaid as Sirafi, um, and I'm still getting Fudland. caught up with your your podcast yeah, is yeah, like no, the new one on the block. So it's like. The last in the list for every episode oh, I listen to, and I'm I feel the, bad now because I'm like, I'm this little monkey. You're interested at, at the side of the tree. <laughs> you know, we were discussing earlier. You know, I've been li the listening is, to bands of Turtle Island forever. 
Yeah. Well, so my mycelium though grows mm. for a long time underneath the surface and it begins to sprout. There was this, I wish I could remember the piece I read on it, but it described revolution like mycelium. And oh. I've never like seen a more accurate description. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's forever. It's one of those things when you're talking about like an immortal science, right? A lot of people dismiss it as a joke. But to me, yeah. immortal science tries to encapsulate this idea that you don't necessarily need the readings yeah, to understand how capitalism oppresses us. You know, you only need to live within the system itself to come to those conclusions, but putting them into words tends to be the difficulty of the lumpen proletariat or the possible reactionary proletariat, like, say, with the patriotic socialist movement. Um, Those people, they want to do good if they're real people. You know, there might be bots or something behind that movement or some shit like that. Like, uh, yeah, Operation Signature Reduction. Well, Operation Signature Reduction is just such a... yeah broad um i mean co pro basically because that's another catch-all it's one of these terms that's a catch-all it's not an actual thing you know if you sued for you for anybody you'd never find operation signature reduction well they did a whole article on it in newsweek and they said that it's sixty thousand people so there's sixty thousand people so they're describing an overarching idea and in that article that article it would be those sixty thousand. Yeah. Well, no, they conflate um, Pentagon, so it's sixty thousand people for the Pentagon. Yeah, that's just the official. The CIA is doing stuff like this. They mentioned the FBI mm. is doing stuff like that, and the catch-all is Operation Signature Reduction. That's and not probably every mercenary uh, military contractor is doing oh. it off the books. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. Or even then, uh, reservists. You know, like people who. Yeah you know, might have been some sort of uh, asset to the state at some point that though retired can be called back on for their loyalty for whatever reason. I mean, it's like, it's a lot of Mockingbird stuff. Like, if you don't know what Operation Mockingbird is, uh, it's where they implanted people into the media and, like, uh, movies in order to just spread propaganda. You know, you can almost see, like, Reagan is probably a good example of that, though we don't have evidence of you know, um, Anderson Cooper had a, a what's it called, a, a internship with the CIA, and then all of a sudden is one of the mm. number one newscasters on fucking television. Um, nope. That's a little nope. suspicious. Um, which yeah, there's people who look into each of, of those, and there's real information that they have. I'm not, I'm right. not, I don't have it holstered and ready to go myself, but yeah. I, I don't either necessarily, but I do know that it's that out is there. a factual piece of information. Yeah. And I do know that I can warn people that right-wingers do attempt to co-opt factual pieces mm-hmm. of information to bolster their right-wing conspiracies. That's supposed yeah. to distract, yeah. dismiss, and disparage the left by association. Mm-hmm. And you mislead know, all those say. people, you know, and those people who are out there, there may be some. Uh, that have good faith, right? And can be uh, reached in some kind of way. You know, what I would really like to, I guess the point I would really want to hit is like our game here, if you're an organizer, our task is not to decide who are the people who are branded correctly and who who are, you know, 
it's I think a lot of people get into liberal branding consciousness rather than dialectical materialist communist consciousness. Well, and so the Pat socials do try to bring up a critique of them, but because of their mm. stupidity, you know, so to say, in, in so many places that they're wrong with their analysis, yeah. that piece is missed, you know. When we look at the right wing, we often throw out whatever they say, but we're not trying to analyze the contradictions that they're expressing because we might assume we know. But even like I was mentioning that 93 get together, you know, the reason why they want to be less racist is because they realize a lot of white people are more impacted by economic anxiety and that can be channeled into racism. And if we give that channeling to the racists rather than trying to channel it ourselves differently, we're going to lose a big battle with people with money that can donate. Too many of us are poor and we need money in these movements again. That was the big thing in the 70s and 80s is that they actually had a middle class support and had people who were sympathetic to donate to the cause. Because... If you have a bunch of poor people, sure, you have the numbers, uh-huh. but numbers uh-huh. don't mean anything if you can't actually mobilize those people because you can't. Well, for one thing, you need well, to and you, and you mainly may. Well, you know, mainly, I think you want to just get your salary as a party uh, strategist, right? Or grifter, right? I wouldn't There's even say a salary. Well, I wouldn't even say like going for a salary. I would say that literally yeah. with organizing. You know, the big you guys have endless money, of course. Oh, you know? for sure. But the like, real operatives like, have the drug money. They have, you know, like you're talking about Iran Contra. Um, yeah, right. They don't well, have to I, like I mean, get like with, money from donors, but yeah, it's well. I mean, with leftists, like we should be looking at finding a way to appeal to the middle class in a way, but not in a way maybe. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say appeal to them. I would say we need yeah. to find a way to bring them into our side. I don't want to appeal yeah. to them. I want to convince them that they are wrong and that we yeah. are right. That they yeah. support us instead. You know, yeah, I think communists becoming middle-class sympathizers should be middle-class people becoming communist no. sympathizers. Yeah, exactly. 